Okay, we are on. Let's see what we get today. Hi, this is Michael Waits, and welcome back to the Wolfcast. I'm excited to have ID Kaimovitz, got it right, the founder of Virtual Actuary, joining us today. Adi, how are you doing, by the way? I'm great, and I'm so looking forward to connecting with some people on the other side of the world. Yeah, can you tell everybody where you are just in case they can't figure it out on their own? Sure. Well, there's a continent called Africa, and I am on the southern tip of Africa. It's quite in a place called Cape Town. Now, what's quite interesting is even though South Africa is in Africa, I've never been past South Africa and into Africa. <laughs> so Africa is just as foreign to me as it is to other people. South Africa is a little bit different. It's a place where I grew up. Yeah, I think there's quite a, an established industry and um, commerce. And I think the rest of Africa is now really sort of exploding. I think South Africa exploded a few years ago. Yeah, but you make a really good point, actually. And this is something I'd love to talk about. I may get the number wrong, but it's 51 different countries in Africa, right? South Africa, obviously right at the bottom there and maybe a few years ahead of the rest of the country. But as you do look north, particularly for some of the stuff that you're doing, 1.3 billion people in Africa, right? Or 1.2, pick a number, I don't really care. But it's starting, like the bit's starting to flip, isn't it, a little bit? It is. I've actually heard that some of those countries and some of those economies are just gigantic. Huge. Yeah. Huge. I mean, how many people are in Nigeria? 200 and something or 170 million people? I don't know, but it's huge, right? Yeah, uh, they've, they've got some, some interesting companies coming out of there. I have seen that, actually. Yeah, I mean, I don't know if we talked about this the last time we were talking offline, but there's an entire show for me that I want to build called Africa Game Changer. Because just like you, like I've never been to that part of the continent. Frankly, I've never been to South Africa either. But I think stuff is going to start moving there. And if I listen to my friends, like I wouldn't have thought of Egypt as a hotbed for venture capital but I'm hearing that that's actually happening as well. I'm wondering if you're hearing oh, really? that too. Yeah. I haven't heard of Egypt. I have heard of some African countries that are throwing around some money from an investment perspective. The numbers are astronomical. I, I was like shocked. Right. When I heard, oh, they're investing like how many billion? I was, I was shocked to be honest. Yeah. Yeah. And if you look at what's happened in other countries, China's the first example, I guess, but India as well. And I think this whole sort of startup technology transformation thing is, is going to start to happen in Africa. It's already happening. It should be pretty amazing to watch from your perspective. Can we get some of your background? Anywhere you want to start is fine with me, just so we can get some context. Sure. I am a businessman, unfortunately. <laughs> Why unfortunately? <laughs> you know, I, I wasn't born <laughs> with a trust fund. And so what that meant was I had to actually do things. <laughs> So over the years, I worked in different companies. I'm an old school businessman. I believe that if you have a great product or service and you can tell people about it in a nice way, they will engage with you. That's always been my philosophy over the years. I'm Jewish. I'm 43 years old. I am a kite surfer. <laughs> I also have a, an off-road motorbike and married with three children. I wasn't like the most popular person in high school, you know, like as far as being in the popular crowd, but I spent my 20s trying to break free and prove myself like all those who weren't trust fund babies. 
And um, I think I eventually came right. Uh, you know, I've been hustling for so many years now that unfortunately it's become part of my DNA. But is there something about the economy in South Africa? Like I went to college with a bunch of trust fund babies. And to be fair, I don't think about it that much anymore. I thought about it a lot then. Where like some of my student friends actually donated money while I was in school to build the athletic center, which back in the day cost $3 million. And I was always shocked by the fact that they were 19 or 20 and had $3 million. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. I think that there's a lot of generosity floating around. But I think also when you're 15, 16, 17, 18, even though the parents are generous and the kids are learning to be generous, you can't get away from the fact that some kids have and other kids don't. Yeah, fair enough. And uh, if you're on the side of the fence where you don't have, it, it, it builds character. And it means that as you grow older, you, you become a bit more of a fighter, I think. You, you have to be brave, but I think bravery is embedded in you because you don't have a choice when it's not just handed to you. Well, here's the thing. Entrepreneurship is filled with ups and downs. I mean, if you're a businessman at some level, you've probably built your own business, which we'll get to. But if you're born with plenty because you don't know what it's like not to have plenty, then I think building something through adversity is much more difficult. It's way more difficult to build something through adversity. It's kind of like you're in the robot wars, but you have to build a robot from just metal that you found lying around on the street, whereas everybody else has got the tools and everything. So even though like these days being an entrepreneur is quite glamorous, the term, I don't like the term entrepreneur. It's almost like embarrassing. I use the term that people understand, not like you'll never hear me say, oh, you're building the next unicorn. And frankly, if you look at my whiteboard, you'll see that's in the column of things that we don't like, actually. But there is no glamour in building a business from scratch. None. Absolutely. So at the moment, I mean, at the moment, I'm having fun. At the moment, I'm doing great. You know, we have a business called Virtual Actuary, a business of consulting actuaries that consult into the insurance and banking sectors, investments and pensions and healthcare. And uh, yes, there's a huge insurtech angle, of course. Okay, we'll go into that now. Yep. But, and we've done well, we've got global clients. But when we started a few years ago, four years ago, and in fact, before that, I had a recruitment business of actuaries. So I've been in the industry for a while. I'm kind of like the guy that used to clean around the desks and, and sweep the floors and stuff. And, and then people like turned, you know, and turned around eventually. I started handing people um, rent uh, invoices. And they're like, why are you handing me a rent invoice? Because like, I'm now in the building. <laughs> Go ahead. Okay. So as I said, I'm having fun now. But when we first started four years ago, I didn't know anything about incubators. I didn't know anything about VC you know, how to get these people to help you to become something. Yeah. I've, I've, you know, I always believe that if you have a product or a service, the only way to do anything about it is to go get clients. Even if it's a product, even if it's an actual product, you might as well start with a client that needs that product, even if it's a very basic version of it, and get them to start using it, and then get the next person to start using it. And as they think, have your feedback session, you don't even need to charge them. Just say, you know, can you use it? <laughs> Please, can you use it? Yeah. I beg you to, I'm begging <laughs> you to use it. Go rock up at their house every morning at five o'clock in the morning. Please, I'll walk your dog. Just please use my product. And so, so our thing was as a services business to just get as many clients as possible and just 
keep the quality of service going. And so my point is that it was only later, once we had clients, probably like 10 or 15 or 20 at that stage, I said, you know what? I also don't want to get too ahead of myself. I really want to go find out what these incubators are all about. Like, so I went to some of these events just as a, as a participant, as a spectator, and I was absolutely fascinated by the whole vibe and there's experts that are there that are willing to share their knowledge and there's people that are pitching and I just I love the whole vibe actually so so for me it was I, I participated more because I, I wanted to learn what the whole thing was about the problem was is by the time I almost wanted to be involved in an incubator we were so past their starting point you know the starting point is we'll get you to a point where your product is good you understand what your your business is all about and you're getting clients but we had already been past that stage. So we passed over that stage, uh, unfortunately. So it almost felt like a step backwards to go into an incubator. Did you know that that whole, I don't want to say scene, but that that whole infrastructure existed when you started? Or is it something that you realized as you were going along and you're like, hey, maybe we should check that out? You know what I mean? Or did you know and you're like, yeah. I'm not going there to start? No, no, I didn't know anything about it. Really? You know, because I'm an old school businessman. I, I, I'm from the school where no one's going to help you. You have to help yourself. So we started the business and we went to go get clients. We, we started with no funding, zero funding. We yeah. still have no funding. Right. It was go get clients. It was only later when I started like really looking into it and I started connecting with people and only then did I look into, oh, is that what incubators are for? What is their purpose? And so on. But did you feel like you learned anything there just by being in that experience? Anything you could take back to your own business and say, well, we're past that stage. But maybe some of these ideas are useful for us, or was it just not too late, but you were just past that stage already and it didn't matter? I think the ideas were good. If, if I really had to think of what were the ideas, it was kind of like distribution channels are very, very important. What I started to realize was what are... So, so my policy has always been when it comes to investments and rounds of raising, and it's kind of like similar with an incubator, while they're there, okay? So what you'll find is that if you're part of an incubation process, besides for refining your product, they will try to connect you with a client or a distribution network to get your client, to get your product out there. Right. They'll almost suggest. And, and so that I found quite fascinating. It was all about, oh, they'll go to Visa. Oh, they'll go to uh, MasterCard. Oh, they'll go to the big businesses. And they will try to get you in there. Oh, that's what they do. They try and help you distribute your product. And, and, when it comes to rounds of raising, I took the same philosophy where I felt if we were going to engage with an investor, and I did actually engage with the investors because I was, I was more curious what they wanted us to do right. to give us the money. And I always felt that the money that anybody would have been willing to put on the table was never going to be enough for what we wanted. Okay. But I still wanted to ask them, if you were going to give us money, what would you want us to do? And then they would say, well, you know, I want to see some clients or, you know, I want to see some, some growth. So then we would go do that. We would go get clients and go get growth. Then I'd come back and say, okay, so if you had to engage with me now, we have clients and we have growth. If you were going to get involved, what would you want to see now? Well, we want to see that you've got, you know, 20 people working, the whole system's more automated. Okay, cool. Then go back and you know, get more people in the business, get more automated, get more clients. So every time we would kind of like jump over these rounds of raising and, 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 and I keep on going back to the people actually. So now I'm at that point where it's like, okay, we want to see that you've got, you know, lots of clients, lots of revenue, lots of traction. 
and that you're credible and that you have global reach. Right. And, okay. But, but, ooh, but where's your exponential technology? Okay. Okay. So we're at that point now. Because some people start with a technology business and then they do rounds of raising to try and get capital, uh, sorry, to try and get um, marketing and get clients. So we didn't start on that side. We started with the clients first and now we're building out the tech. So once we've got the clients and the tech, then I'll, I'll chat with them and, and see what they say then. Then we'll try and do that. <laughs> <laughs> so were you ever a tech guy? In other words, when you started building this business, because it says virtual in it, so it almost sounds like you expected to build tech at some point. Or was that something Very that much. just came out of these meetings? It was always part of the plan? It was always part of the plan. So the business is called Virtual Actuary. Yeah. Because the 10 or the 15-year goal is actuaries consulting from home in virtual and augmented reality. Tell me, this is fascinating. Go ahead. Okay. So, so what we're dealing with is, now when you say virtual and augmented reality, the most important thing is to understand we're talking about a more immersive experience. So they're not going to be staring at screens, but rather they're going to be more so inside the system. And, and, and so that's the key. Like now I have one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight screens in front of me. Back in the day, you had one or two. Okay, so, so, so they will work in a more immersive experience into the client's offices. They'll have more of a pod. And pre-COVID, you know, I always believed that the actuaries should be working from anywhere. Geographical area made no difference. It's just math, The actuary yeah. mind. It's just it, math. It's just, it, it's just, it's the maths but it's the ability to interact with the clients and the teams without having to be sitting in a room. That was the concept. Here's an idea. And tell me if I'm wrong with what you're saying, because here's an idea I've had for a while now. I have a room that's like five square meters, two and a half square meters, yeah, the whole room. And it's all glass. And those glasses are all some kind of screens that can be capacitive touch screens, that can change into green screens, that can do whatever they want. And inside of those screens, I can have, let's say four or five cameras, I have microphones everywhere and I can change what's on those screens in a way that makes me feel like I'm sitting either on the beach with you just after you're done kite surfing or sitting in that office with you with that big screen in the background and those books that I can see sitting behind you. So that not only do I feel like I'm with you, but you feel like you're with me and I can change it to anything I want. I can be in Paris, I can be in Johannesburg, I can be anywhere, but that room is going to be the key to that immersive experience. Is this what you're talking about? Yes. So what would happen is instead of a corporation building a big building, they will rather supply the pod to their workers, to those involved in the business. And once you have the pod, the pod would literally be exactly what you're talking about. And, um, and, and you know, one will go into even learning for children. Online learning will be the same thing. Sure. So we will be more immersive when we either go to work or when we were studying in an experience that is just more 5D. Okay. You know, if we look at those that are listening, I think that a, a hot topic would be being connected, digitally connected. And, and one of the things that we talk about is why connected consortiums are the future of most industries. This is like a hot topic. So what it means is that technology is at a point now where it doesn't matter who you are, you can participate. You can participate in meetings, you can participate in work, 
you can be at a, at a concert, you can participate without being at the event, okay? It also means that you can participate in business without having to drive to the inner city and be in the big building. Yeah. What used to happen, and almost the reason why large cities became large cities is because from a telecommunications perspective, you could not work from home. I mean, we're talking like fax days, days, faxes, telephones. This is only like 20 years ago, 25 years ago. It's not even that long. If you wanted to actually work, you had to live close to the inner city because in that building was the office. And in that office, why was it an office? It's an office because that's where all the telephone lines were. Yep. That's where the computers plugged in. That's where the fax machine was. You could only work from there. You could only be connected to industry, to commerce, if you were there. Yep. Okay. So what we have now is a situation where that is not the case. You can be connected from anywhere. When I talk about the future of most industries, what I'm saying is that we can also go further than that in saying that now anybody can participate digitally in any business. So you've got two options now. You've either got, and you can even be in the car on your phone. You can do, you can work, okay? Yeah. When I talk about consortiums, connected consortiums, what I'm talking about is that most businesses these days operate as management structure that somehow gathered enough money together to open the business. They then hired some employees who could help them manage the different departments. This is generally how most businesses work, is you're an employee and you get paid a salary to do a particular job and there's a bonus structure. But inevitably what happens is you are a participant in that department, but you're getting paid a salary to do your job, Yep. okay? Now, when we talk about the gig economy, people are realizing now that they can be free agents. They don't wanna be employed, they don't wanna be watched. They want to be the owners of their own destiny. So we have the gig economy that has now come through. A 4.0 of the gig economy, or what we call the mega gig economy, is where you take those that have the ability to do a gig, so let's say the department heads inside that business and, and you say to them, let's rather operate as a consortium. So instead of you being an employee that manages that piece of work and you being the employee that manages that piece of work and you being the manager that manages that piece of work, and when the company makes money, all that money will go into the business's bank account and then everybody gets their salaries and the big corporation takes most of the money. That's how things work now. But in a, cons in a connected consortium, it means that these mega gig economy participants or these free agents, if they organize themselves and they understand that this consortium has a shared revenue outlook, which means that you will get paid when the money comes in, in a more fair way than you being a salaried employee with a company taking most of the money. Okay, you're a consortium. And so, so what happens is you split the money. But the only way that you can split the money and the only way you can actually be involved in a consortium is if you can actually connect to the consortium. Technology allows you to connect. So this is a, a 4.0 of the gig economy where those different unit heads in the business are free agents that work together in an organized way 
and they actually compete with a real corporation that does exactly that same thing. So that consortium can now compete as a business with the big companies where everybody else is an employee. There's still money coming in to the business. The consortium is a business, but instead of everybody being an employee, you are a shared revenue participant. You're connected into the consortium and the consortium operates as a business. And the reason I say why are connected consortiums the future of most industries it's because once you understand that you are a participant in the business, you could do exactly the same thing in a consortium. Once you understand that and you can organize the consortium and the consortium starts to compete for the same client as the corporation, the clients will realize that they're actually getting a better product or service at a much better price from the consortium than they are from the big corporation. But won't the consortium members also get paid more as well? Yes, that's the whole point. Exactly. They will get paid way more because the corporation isn't taking most of the money. That's the whole point, is that it's a shared revenue arrangement. You actually get paid more. And because you're getting paid more, you're more vested in the quality and service. So the client actually gets a much better deal. So that's once people understand that and the clients start to realize, okay, so you know this pair of shoes was actually made from a consortium of people that make these tackies, they're actually much nicer. That's not just about mass and about making profit and it's half the price. I'm going to buy from the consortium instead of the corporation. Uh, you, you know, then, then what you'll realize is that the consortiums start to take over from corporations because, because everybody's getting a much better deal. So that, that, that we open a consortium of actuaries that work in a very organized, you see how it all comes together, yeah. works in a very organized way to compete with the big firms of actuaries to offer our service at a much better rate with a much better output. And when the money comes into the consortium, they get paid about double to what they would as employees. And that's, where, that's, why, we've take, that's why we've done so well as an actuary consulting business with our new business model. And is there more leverage in this business if it goes global as opposed to being local or regional? And I've got to follow up to that because I have ideas around this, but go ahead. I'm curious what you think. Do you know what I mean? Yes. And it's mainly because what you will find is that the big corporations that have in-country offices, they actually don't want to work together because they're each trying to make their own budget. Yeah. So what you'll find is that they actually, even though they sound like a global business, they actually all chasing their own tails in their own region. And when they start outsourcing the work to different countries, then those other countries have to pay for the work from the more expensive countries. So even though it seems like they work quite well together, they actually don't. Yes, there's a lot of knowledge sharing, sure. But, but as an organized business, they don't actually do that well because they're all trying to make their own budgets. But with a, with a, a consortium, if you don't have an in-country budget that you need to meet and expenses, then I think you can, you can leverage that and you can get clients overseas. Let's just simplify this just for a second. If I'm an actuary living in New York or in London, I'm going to earn like $150,000 or £150,000 a year. But if I'm an actuary with the same skill set and the same mindset and stuff like that, but I'm in Vietnam, I'm going to earn $50,000 a year. There's an arbitrage here. But that arb can move two ways. In other words, the people in London and New York can take a lower salary to compete with just on a salary basis with the actuaries or others in Vietnam, or 
those can meet in the middle somewhere so that the people in Vietnam actually, their, light, their quality of living goes higher and their salaries go higher. How do you think that arbitrage gets closed in the context of these consortiums? So what you'll find is that he who has the money is the king. So what you'll generally find is that in the more established economies, these corporations go into areas where people are earning less. Yeah. They come in with their big money and they just open up a, a, an office there. So, so they, they actually outsource to, to what we call more, more affordable labor. So they actually get a raw deal because they don't actually pay them more. They're just saying, oh, well, you're desperate for money and we'll just pay you less. So that's when you have an arbitrage feeding off uh, um, an economy that is not as established. Okay? They, they don't actually pay them a fair wage, okay? but they do bring them work, which is fair enough. So what we're saying is that what you really want is a flat structure where according to your skill, because, and, and why is that? The reason for that is because the shareholders of those large corporations are chasing more profit. They're not chasing fairness. Okay, they're not chasing love and light. Okay, which is fair enough. I mean, you know, they, they, every year they have to make more profit. Fair enough. Okay. But in a situation where you have a consortium that is saying, according to your skill level, we're going to just pay you a flat structure, whatever it is. It's a global flat structure according to your skill level. It doesn't matter where you are. There's, there's no point in taking advantage of you because it actually goes against the whole ethos of the business. The business is you know, great quality service at affordable rates that are fair. Yeah. Okay. So there's no point in squeezing people. So if you get the clients to understand that they are interacting with a global business that has people all over the world and it's a fair wage. And when they pay that money, those that are working get most of that money. Then the clients will start to realize they're actually getting a better service. So the way that the consortiums can compete with these arbitrages and stuff like that, it all comes down to the clients. Once the clients understand that even though they're dealing with a New York firm or a UK firm, or they're dealing with whatever firm it is, and, and they think that they're getting these like overseas actuaries, but in fact, they're just outsourcing them to different regions. Once they really understand that, then they say, well, how much are they getting paid? I don't want slave labor. Right. You know, I actually want a great quality service at an affordable rate. It's all about the clients and, and where they're buying from. But the only way that this whole system works is if the consortium has credibility in the service delivery. If there's a global standard of delivery from an actuarial perspective, the clients will understand that. They'll say, this is a great quality service. It's reliable. I don't need to pay the expense of firm because that's what those overseas firms provide is quality because you do have senior managers at a, at a higher level that won't dish work out because their reputation will get ruined. So even though they're getting more affordable labor, at the end of the day, if things go a little bit sideways, they do have more experienced actuaries that can come in and save the day. That's what the clients are paying for right. is that they are risk averse. And that's very, very important. So if the consortium is not organized and your quality of delivery is not at that global level, then the whole thing falls apart. And then the clients are not going to buy from you because you have no credibility in the quality of the service delivery. And where does the disruption start here? Is it the client that's the disruptor? Is it the consortium that's the disruptor? Like, how does that work? The disruption is in the business model itself. The disruption is in two parts. Number one, it's in the consortium 
operating as a lean global business. So what that means is it doesn't have all these high street offices and expenses that is just part and parcel of everything that they do. That's the first thing. It's a very important point. Okay. One operates as a lean business. The second thing is that because people are not salaried employees and and they're not get they're not getting paid a salary and the company's taking most of the money, when they do participate, then they make more money. And because of that, they're actually happier. They're actually happier. So those two things, because that's the business model, is that you're a lean business. You don't charge as much for the same person. And when that person works, they get most of the money. Yeah. It's actually a four-way swing. So you get a much more affordable person who actually gets paid double. And when the team gets paid like that, it's very difficult for the large established firms to compete because they have all these expenses. They can't just get rid of them. Plus, everybody else is on salaries and with the partners and the big corporation taking most of the money. You don't just drop your profit. So that's the problem for them is the disruption is actually in the simplicity of the business model that if because of digitization, it costs you significantly less to participate. Right. The, the moat is gone. You see, you know, when we talk about the fourth industrial revolution and we'll go into the second point, but the fourth industrial revolution is really not about flying cars and traveling to Mars <laughs> and, and robotics. And, you know, what it really is about is that the man on, and the woman on the street have technology available at an affordable price that allows them to compete and participate. Whereas before, the only people that could participate were the big corporations. There was a moat there. You were the only ones that had the technology. So that moat is now gone. Yeah. So once people understand that they can participate, then it's about organizing themselves to be able to compete. And that's the disruption, is the technology has enabled people to be able to to compete in a fair way. I want to tell you another quick story. When I was in college, I took a part-time job over the summer at a car dealership. And I got that job by going through a temp agency. <laughs> and I was getting paid $4.25 an hour to work for an accountant, the CFO basically of this Cadillac dealership. Right? And again, they had the money. I needed the money. I had to pay for college and books and stuff like that, yeah? And I one day I started thinking about it. I'm like, wait a second. What are they paying the temp agency? And I went in and I asked the CFO. I'm like, look, I've only been here for a week or so, but like, what are you paying the temp agency? And he was like, eight seventy five an hour. So I looked at him and with a smile and I said, I, I quit. But I'm willing to work for you for $6 an hour. And he said, you're hired. But that doesn't scale, right? Because you can't talk to people like that at scale. But I think what you're suggesting here is that this access that technology gives you, you remove the proximity problem, everybody gets access to similar amounts of information. And as long as you have access to that tech, it doesn't matter if you're in Boston or a tiny suburb in a small part of Nigeria, you can still provide actuarial services to anybody in the world. And if you're part of that consortium and part of the network that manages that consortium, nobody even needs to know where you are, right? And as long as you're getting paid a fair amount of money, you're actually, because I was happy to work for that $6 an hour way harder than I was for the four twenty-five, right? Because I felt more empowered. You know, I like to use this word agency. I have agency if I'm in charge, yeah? 
And I think that's what you're talking about, no? Very much so. In fact, we are now in a situation where people's eyes are open. We can all see what is going on. Yeah. We can all see the inequality. So the question is, what are you going to do about it? Are you going to march in the street, which is useful, or are you going to organize yourselves in a professional way? Okay. But people are realizing that they don't want to go into an office where they are told to work from eight till five, yeah. where they are told that they have to work after hours, where they are told. So, you know, back in the day, people were a little bit more, more hardened. And they accepted that the boss was going to be a bit more aggressive and you just had to listen that, that, you know, you didn't move around much, you know, it's kind of like, I deserve to be treated more fairly. You know, if you said that back in the day, people would basically tell you to, to, you know, put the milk down and get the hell out. I mean, my boss used to say, get your chemotherapy when the market's closed. That's a real quote. Off therapy or anti-therapy? No, he said, he would say, I don't care. Just if you're sick, I don't care. Go get your chemotherapy when the market's closed. Because I worked in a market-facing business, yeah? I traded stocks and bonds. And he actually said that. Now, he didn't say it to yeah. somebody who had cancer, but that was how aggressive they were. Go get your, go, go get your chemo when, when the market's closed. Yeah, exactly, exactly. That's the whole point, okay? Yeah. So now we're dealing in a situation where people want to be treated more fairly and they want to be loved more. It's kind of like... You have to create a, a business where people have a lifestyle and they can plug into the business instead of they work like slaves all day long. And if they're lucky at nine o'clock at night, they can eat their dessert and have their moment of freedom. Yeah. Okay, So there's, there's a big difference there. Yeah. Like with us, it's kind of like, you know, when somebody says, well, from one to two, I'm going to go to soccer practice and watch my kids playing soccer, or I'm going to yoga class, like we cheer that kind of stuff on. In fact, in our business, we have a whole wellness program where we send people there, massages and the whole vibe, you know, so that you actually feel loved. Very, very important. So we're in a situation now where you want to treat people more fairly and people expect to be treated more fairly. They don't want to be owned so what are their options? So your options are two. If you don't want to be an employee and feel owned, you can work in the gig economy. But the gig economy is not organized. So that's the whole point. That's the whole point of the thing is that this is like what we call a mega gig economy. And if it works well, or rather when it works well, it operates like a global corporation pretty much where it's organized and people are making money but the main thing is that the money trickles to everybody else so, so that's the main point of it and i could go on about this particular point but i think if we go into the second point that i wanted to talk about which is and, and it kind of all ties in okay which is how we plugged our insure tech actuaries into a global village so it is a global village at the moment, and that's why we're communicating, because we're part of this like global village where, where even though we're not in the same city, we're talking the same language. I think that back in the day, before we were all connected, there was no way to let people know about you and what you do. For sure. And so now with various websites and communities and forums and stuff like that, if you have a product or a service or a business or an insure tech or whatever it is, you have the ability to be able to tell the world about it. You're able to plug your product, your service, your insurtech 
into the world. And so this is who we are. We've got a YouTube channel. It explains what we do. This is how it's better. This is the technology behind it. You are actually able to tell the world about you without having to fly across the world and go to a conference and, and be a speaker on a stage. Yeah. And that's a very important point because it doesn't cost anything. It's very, very, very encouraging because, you know, some people get out of bed and they're like, ah, you know, I don't feel great. If you only knew how difficult it was for people back in the day to even do things and, and what tools you have available to you now at no cost whatsoever, you should wake up screaming and shouting with joy that you have an opportunity to tell the whole world about what you guys do, right. what your business does. It's like the most unbelievable thing. It's so encouraging. So, you know, what we've tried to do is we've tried to take the actuaries in our business and the services that we offer and, and the InsurTech that we've built in-house and, and say, we are open. We are open for business. We are open for global business. And interestingly enough, and not surprisingly enough, people are saying, well, that's rather interesting. Can we talk? Can we have a demonstration? Can you tell us what it does? And that's why we're picking up global clients. I mean, it's not rocket science. No. It's just we are connected. This is what we do. There's no ego there. It's just it's a great product. We think it's at a great price point. We think it does great things. We have a fantastic track record and credibility. If you want to talk with us about it, we would love to talk with you about it. And the clients are talking to us about it. So this is how we plugged into the global village with you know, various websites like LinkedIn or Facebook or Instagram, whatever it is, and, and, and nice podcasts like this. So yeah, you know, I, think it's, I think it's an important point because if, if you are a developer or a programmer or you're working on a product or, or whatever it is, your starting point is not, I have to have an investor to be able to get off the ground. No, it's not. That's a lot of people's thinking. Yeah. Your real starting point is to go to YouTube or to go to Rumble, you know, various platforms and to open a channel and talk about it and tell the world about it. And don't worry about your, your NDAs. You know what an NDA is? Non-disclosure agreement. It's a complete waste of time yeah. and not enforceable in court anyway. So who cares? Exactly. So, so go tell the world about it, you know, go, go get some feedback and, and, and go from there. You just never know where some of the most unbelievable uh, product owners at, at, at Google and Microsoft and Tesla and all these fantastic companies, Coca-Cola and Pepsi and, you know, are going to go, hey, that's such an awesome product. I, I just, I love these guys. It's so raw. You know, they're just such untapped talent. You can't believe what I discovered. Go look at what they're doing. Go look at what they're doing. What does it cost you? It didn't cost you anything. Nothing. So that's how you connect with the global village. And, and that's why, like, I'm so excited about where we're at in this world. Adi, I feel like we could go on forever on this. <laughs> I really do. Here's what I want to do. I want to stop now and I want you to come back and talk more about this because I want to talk a little bit about tech, but I also want to talk about how this can be applied in ways to other, I don't even want to say industries, but to other verticals as well. But for now, I just want to, I want to stop here and just thank you for doing this. What a great conversation. This was not what I expected today at all, but this resonates with me. Because what I do is I give that platform for people to tell that story. This is the entry point for people who want to get clients, who, and not suggesting you do, but who just want to build a business. And I want to loop back to one of the things you said at the beginning. 
go get a client. It doesn't even matter if they pay you. And one of like my epiphany moments, because remember, I came out of a big corporate background. We didn't have to convince anybody to work with us per se. They just had a choice. Here are the six companies that do this. Oh, come on, we'll take you out to dinner. You'll be our client. It's a weird way to run a business. But when you're building a business from scratch, the idea is not to go get funding. <laughs> the idea is to go get a client. And I ask people all the time now, do you have any clients? No. Why? And that why is not an aggressive why. It's not like, why don't you have any clients? It's let's think about why you don't have any clients and what you have to do to get a client. Anyway. That's the number one point that a lot of people get wrong. You see, if you go get an investor, they are going to give you the money. Inevitably, they'll ask you why you want the money. But one of the first meetings that they will have with you, once the money's sitting in the bank account and you haven't spent it yet, <laughs> is, okay, guys and girls, what are we going to do today to get more clients, right. to get more users? So why not just get it without the money? Like it that's it. What's the strategy? Okay, what's the strategy? How can we get more, more work in? And, and that is the most important thing. So, so why do you need them to ask you? Why can't you ask yourself the same question? Now, where a lot of people also get it wrong, they build this product and it's very, very sophisticated and has this like dashboard, like a cockpit That's in, in, in a fighter jet. The problem is they go to present it and it has all these bells and whistles. And it actually overwhelms the client. It overwhelms people. They're like, man, oh man. And, and who is going to train our staff? I can't even get them to come back from tea <laughs> on time. And you think that they're going to learn how this product works. It, it looks like it's going to crash. What happens if it crashes? Who's going to fix it? So they actually build these very, very sophisticated products. It's too sophisticated. And, and then when they go and present it, they've actually overwhelmed the person they're interacting with. And they, they shoot themselves in the foot. They don't want to use it. It's too complicated to integrate into their businesses, especially in the InsurTech game where the clients don't care about functionality as much as they care about reliability. Yeah. See, their system cannot crash. Their system cannot crash. That's why they're on legacy systems. So the most important, and, and, and beyond that, beyond that, once we start going into the software discussion, we start going into a realm of data security. We start going into a whole different stream of compliance. People really need to understand that. You want to integrate with our business. Is it going to crash? Is it going to corrupt the data? Are, are, are we just going to, is it going to wipe our client uh, data and, and history just straight off, you know. So, so these are the kind of things that they're thinking about. So when it comes to a client, what you really want is to beg, borrow, and steal. You know, what you really want is to go and, and speak to somebody and say, look, I'm actually not going to charge you. And so that's the most important thing is you have to go get clients. But how do you get that client? You offer your services for free, basically. That's as simple as that. You offer it for free. And, and if you can just get one or two or three or four clients that are using it, that's a great starting point. Yeah, that's what I think as far as clients are concerned. I agree. Okay, I'm going to let you go. That was awesome. Adi Kaimovitz, the founder of Virtual Actuary, this was really super. Thank you so much. You got to come back, though. 
I'm happy to come back and talk about other things. I think the take home for anybody is that don't let anybody tell you what to do and what is right and what is wrong. Yeah, for sure. Okay? Because there's so many different ways of doing things. The most important thing is that you just do. If you're not doing, you're doing too much thinking. And that's what I really think is that people just need to do more. They need to be out there more. They need to be speaking with more people. And if they can do that, then they'll actually get somewhere. That's what I think. I don't think people, I think people think too much.